We're in the Gospel of John today, if you want to turn there. And I'll remind you again that we did purchase more pew Bibles. So if you uh, did not bring yourself a Bible today, please, please, please feel free to grab one um, from the pew ahead of you to read along from God's Word, because it is the most important thing we're going to do today. But also, secondly, encourage you that if you're like me and you use your phone for your Bible very often, uh, maybe just to break habit, pick up a paper Bible today, um, just to uh, get get the idea again that the Word has been delivered to us and that this book is valuable and special, um, set apart above all other books. So we're in John chapter one, and for Advent this year, we are traveling through uh, four words that we're pulling from the first eighteen verses. And so week one, we talked about the light and life in Christ of the world. And so we looked at that word live. Um, Last week, we looked at the witness of John the Baptist. And so we took that word believe, which is what he was calling us to do. And today we're taking the word receive out of verses 9 through 13. So just to give you a little sneak peek here as you're turning to that. I'll go ahead and read it and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help for our time ahead of us here. John chapter 1, starting at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Will you bow your heads with me, please, one more time before we look at God's word again? Father in heaven, we look to you now that we might receive the food of your word to feed our hungry souls. Lord, until we are with you in glory, we can't say on any day that our souls are completely satisfied. So whatever awareness we have of our spiritual nutrition this morning, we ask for your help. We confess that we need you. We confess that we need your word this morning. And we pray that far beyond the ability of a person to explain or a person to comprehend uh, or receive uh, words given from men, Lord, we look to your word as the word given to men from the only true living God. He who is the word. We pray that you would empower these next moments, not for our own glory, to puff us up, to make us feel that we are someone important, but rather that we might be established in the truth of the gospel and that we might indeed see that you have provided all things that we need for life and godliness in Christ, that you would help us to live in light of what we have received and receive it daily from your hand. We ask now for your Holy Spirit to come and help us illuminate the text in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from live to believe, we come this week to receive. And the rhyming just didn't work out too well for me overall because next week is behold. Would have loved to have live, behold, receive, or something. Make it make it rhyme, right? But it's, it's not going to rhyme perfectly for us, and that's okay. Um, but to give a little bit of a recap of what we've looked at so far. Our first week, we looked at verses one through five of chapter one, and we were introduced to the word who was with God in the beginning and who was God. He was the agent of creation. By him, all things were made and not anything that was made was made apart from him. The week after that, 
we found in verses 6 through 8, that the darkness of the world that has resisted that light, God sent a man to it named John, just a simple person like any one of us. But he was given a marvelous task. And the thing that points John, that, sta- that makes John stand out more than anything is not his preaching, is not his baptisms, it's not his, uh, his unusual habits of living in the wilderness, but it is in fact his commission from God himself, which we share as well. We share a commission from the Lord to be uh, those who bear witness to the light of Christ. So we want to keep that in mind, especially as we keep moving, because this is one of John's major themes for the whole of his gospel here. Uh, We looked ahead last week in John chapter 20, where he says that these things were written so that you may what? Believe. So John's intention in writing his gospel is to show everyone who Christ is and that they would all believe that Jesus is the Christ and that they would receive salvation through him alone. But what we'll see even in the rest of chapter 1, and and I want to remind you, I challenged you the first week to be reading John chapter 1, perhaps even every day. It takes just four or five minutes to get through the chapter slowly. Um, But if, if you continue reading John chapter 1 with me through December... The thing that's so easily highlighted is the fact that even from the beginning of this gospel, we see witnesses of Christ arising before he's even gone to the cross, before he's even risen from the dead. But the ones that he's calling to be his disciples immediately become witnesses who make other disciples. So we want to keep this idea of bearing witness to the light in mind even as John um, takes that interlude or that interruption from last week and moves back into what he kind of left off with in verse 5 of chapter 1 and now coming back to the true light. So you see that transition again in verse 8. He was not the light, but he came came to bear witness about the light. And then verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And this is what Christmas is all about. Well, that's what Christmas is all supposed to be about, right? It's about Christ coming into the world. Uh, one of you know, my favorite things, and we did this last week, we, we went through the, um, uh, the fairgrounds light uh, thing that they have up, you know, the drive-through lights at the fairgrounds. And Christmas lights are just one of the most wonderful things about Christmas time, isn't it? I mean, it's super fun to drive through town when, when it gets dark so early and we're all depressed because we have seasonal affective disorder and we're all missing the sunlight. It's a breath of fresh air to see beautiful, magnificent lights on people's houses and on businesses and um, down street corners. It's an encouraging thing. And that's really a great picture of what Christmas is intended to portray to us that the light has come into the world. And what are we to do with that light? Today, all of our weeks of Advent this year are verbs. We're meant to live because of this light. We're meant to believe in the light. And today we're going to emphasize this idea of receiving the light. Today we set our eyes on verses 9 through 13 and our need to receive Christ as the true light coming into the world. And with that, we'll see three groups of people and how they responded to the light. And again, I'm going to be a broken record about this because when we sit here and look at God's word, it is important for us to keep in mind what he is speaking to us, how we might feed off of this word. But we also need not forget that as we leave through those doors, we are meant to be carrying this light with us wherever we go. So we don't want to forget that as we're thinking about this and we're seeing the way people received the light or didn't receive it more like, 
You need to be thinking about the fact that we see those people every single day. You see them in your workplaces. You see them at home. You see them in your neighborhoods, at the grocery store. Wherever you go and wherever you are, we're surrounded by people who fall into one of these three categories that we'll see. Well, our truth that we need to focus on today is that God's word tells us we must receive the light of Christ by faith. We see that that sort of thesis statement coming out here in verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name. And he makes, John makes those two phrases an equation. This equals this. Those who receive him are those who believe in his name. It doesn't say anything about how they needed to get baptized, even though he's already mentioned the baptizer. He hasn't said anything about a doctrinal statement that needs to be adhered to in order to receive salvation, even though he's been heavily doctrinal so far. Talking about Jesus in the beginning, who was the word and who was with God and who was God and who created everything. There's so much doctrine coming in here, but ultimately what John is wanting his readers to do is receive Christ by faith. Is it essential to believe in the right Jesus and believe that he is the word who was with God and who was God from the beginning? Yes. And little plug for next Sunday's Sunday school, we're going to be talking about St. Nicholas and his, and part of his story involves a battle with someone who was trying to take away John chapter one, verse one from the doctrinal standard of the church to say that he was not God, but perhaps was a God or was different from God emphasizing his separation to the degree that he removes his divinity entirely. John thinks doctrine is important, but the starting point, and in fact, our day-to-day basis of relationship with Christ is in receiving by faith the light of Christ. It doesn't seem too hard to do to receive something, does it? We have been spending um, our evenings reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, which has been super fun. We just finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And of course, one of my favorite parts in there, because I love Christmas so much, is when Santa Claus shows up. Of course, this is C.S. Lewis writing from in England in the 1950s, and he calls him Father Christmas. But Father Christmas shows up, and he gives gifts to the Pevensies. And these gifts are not toys, he says specifically, they're tools. He gives them things like a sword and a shield and a bow and arrow, a small dagger and a cordial of some kind of mystical fluid that will heal any ailment or any disease or any sickness that someone may come across. And the Pevensies, who were not expecting to go to war when they entered the wardrobe, suddenly were prepared for war by these things that were brought to them by Santa Claus, of all people. So just a bunch of kids. They were prepared to bear witness to the light of Aslan, who was coming, who was the one who was in the world and who created the world of Narnia and who was going to come back and redeem it. And they were going to fight alongside him. And again, those gifts, they were gifts that were things that were welcomed by the Pevensies. They, they felt as they received them the great need for these tools in their lives. And they certainly put them to use in the rest of the story. We also must receive the light of Christ today, but there is a problem. And perhaps that problem could be illustrated to us in thinking more about Christmas time. And perhaps on December 13th, you're not quite yet in the Christmas shopping mood, or maybe you've already gotten it all done. Maybe you don't really care about it too much. But one of the things that is challenging for me has always been the idea of comparison when it comes to gifts. I want to be a good gift giver. And I want whatever my gift is that I give to someone to be good on the basis of how it compares to the gift that they gave me. 
I did not do a good job unless, and this is not a good thinking, by the way, but this is my struggle. I did not do a good job unless my gift supersedes their gift and is better than it, right? They gave me something wonderful. That's really nice, but my gift is better. Therefore, I've done a good job. Certainly, when we think about receiving Christ, this mentality can come into play. God has given us his son, a small baby in a manger. I mean, the, the, the pictures that come to our mind when we think about Christmas emphasize the preciousness of Christ to us, emphasize the immeasurable value of the Son of God. Not a one of us here would willingly plan on giving a child for someone else, much less an enemy, more than a friend, giving our child to them for their good, for their well-being. But God has decided to do this in Christ. How can we then match such a gift? How can we receive it well? Is there something in us that, again, this idea of, oh, boy, you gave me something really nice. I, I ought to give you something just as nicer, if not nicer. I, I ought to come up with something to offer you. This is our problem with receiving Christ. This is one of the problems we have with receiving Christ. Perhaps another problem we have is to think that, well, I can only receive something if I've worked for it, if I really deserve it, if I really deserve to be on the nice list this year. If I earned that spot on that side of the column, we watched, well, I'm going to be honest with you. We watch a lot of Christmas movies by this point of the year. And uh, we watched a new one last year and a new one this year. And it was fascinating to me. This movie just came out last year. And uh, the, the premise is your typical, you know, passing on of the torch of whoever's going to be Santa Claus. And as that plan falls apart, the person who ends up in the role of Santa Claus is doing everything very type A mathematically, systematically. Um, he's got formulas and equations to figure out who's on the nice list and who's on the naughty list. And everyone in the North Pole is astounded when he says there are only 2,146 or whatever, small number of kids on the nice list this year. And they all gasp, that can't be. Santa Claus has to go to millions of houses. How could there only be 2,000 kids that are on the nice list? And yet I sat there thinking this movie is probably more theologically accurate than most of the other Christmas movies I've ever seen. Not to say that there are 2,000 kids that deserve to be on the nice list, but ultimately, none of us deserve to be on the nice list, right? So instead of giving a present, this Santa Claus in this movie um, gave a, an, sent an email out to them to say, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you did not make the nice list this year because of your inability to clean your room, because of your back talking to your parents. Um, but we encourage you to try harder next year and make sure that you get on for next Christmas. Really funny movie. But again, it highlights something to us of our, our sense of need to work for something, to earn that something, to deserve it. Of course Christ died for me. Why wouldn't he die for me? Sounds like a ridiculous statement, but when we have that works mentality and that earning desire in us, we face this problem that we undo all of what Christ has done and can't come to know him. And this is, of course, the first group. Look down with me at verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Does that mean that everyone received that light? No, we can't take 9 out of context and say, oh, well, hey, the light shines to everyone, so everyone gets the light. You know, here, most likely, what John is saying is that in creation, God has revealed himself. You can go to Romans 1 and see this. He's revealed himself to all of creation so that no one was with an excuse. No one can say, hey, that's not fair. I didn't know the gospel. I didn't know that God existed. I shouldn't have to go to hell. I should be able to go to heaven. 
The true light has shined, has given light to everyone. Another theory, and, and perhaps a better theory, as far as understanding this passage, is that the true light is the only light which can give light to everyone. So therefore, the emphasis is the great need for us to give the light, because as we probably, as I'm scanning our, our room here, I think we all agree and believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And John is already hinting at that 14 chapters earlier in his book. The true light, which is the only light that can give light to everyone, was coming into the world. How great of an urgency ought we to have? Beloved, we are carrying the light of Christ. We can bear witness to it wherever we go and with whomever we find ourselves in conversation. And people desperately need it. How desperately? Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, which we've heard before, haven't we? We've heard, we know that the world was made through him, but John says it again. Why? Why is anything ever repeated in the Bible? So yeah, it's the point, right? Because we are spiritually hard of hearing, okay? So John is emphasizing again. He was in the world. You know that world that was made through him? He is the maker of that world. And what happened? Yet the world did not know him. That's our first group of people in this passage. The world, that is everyone, that is any human being, in seeing Christ did not know him. And we are specifically talking here about the world who has known the historical works of God throughout the whole of the Old Testament. All of the wonderful acts, not only of creation, which is enough, the fact that God created everything, but beyond that, all of his redemptive acts that we read about in the Old Testament, from Egypt to the exiles and bringing his people back and saving them time and time again. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Secondly, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So we've got a world that does not know him, and then we've got his own people. Well, who, who are these own people? This is the actual nation Israel, which, you know, at the time, Jesus spent time in mostly in the southern kingdom here, talking and revealing himself to his people, showing them who he was and giving them no reason to doubt that he was, in fact, the promised Messiah that we learned about in Sunday school today. But even his own people, the ones who had his word, who were able to under, who were, were given the message that a Messiah was going to come, they did not receive him. Look again at the differences between these two groups. John is never going to do anything on accident in his gospel. So when he says that the world did not know him, it means something different than the fact that his own people did not receive him. That is because largely Jesus, again, gave even his own people even more reason not to miss who he was. And as you read through the Gospels, I'm sure you've had times where you've looked at it and you've been like, how are you missing this? You know, the one that stands out to me is the paralyzed man who's dropped in through the ceiling. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're asking in your minds, who am I to say that this man's sins are forgiven? But so that you may know that I have power and authority to forgive sins here on earth, I'm going to heal this guy. And he heals him. And, and the proof is right there. And what do they do? It's at that moment they decide, we got to get rid of him. We are not going to receive him. And so his own people largely did not receive him. 
in Acts 17 to emphasize that first group once more uh, that did not know him. In Acts 17, we find Paul um, going to Athens and getting ready to talk to people there. He's walking around and observing statues. And he finds one statue that has an inscription underneath it that says, To the unknown God. And then he works off of that, right? He goes to the people and he says, this God that you worship without knowing, I'm going to proclaim him to you. The world did not know him. And 600 years earlier, the prophet Jeremiah, speaking against Jerusalem to which Jesus came, the capital city of God's people in Judah, even though they were meant to be in relationship with God, Jeremiah says in 32, 33, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And I want you to make a quick connection here with the beginning of John 1, because I think this is really cool. And I don't know that John had this in mind, but it's an interesting use of this illustration. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. That word with is talking about a face-to-face relationship. And now how is it you know, 600 years earlier that Jeremiah is describing the people of God, they're the ones who are not in a face-to-face relationship but have turned their face from God. And so Jeremiah continues in verse 33, though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. The world does not know him. His own people do not receive him. So two actions in response to the light. The world throws up their arms and says, I don't know what to do with this guy. I don't know him at all. I have no idea. Totally clueless. Though they have no reason, no excuse for not knowing him. And then his own people, this word, uh, this very uh, common word, and, and maybe some of us may not know it, um, but I would say that his own people have ghosted Jesus. Do you guys know what ghosted means? It's like when you're talking in a text message to someone and somebody asks you a question and you just ignore them and it's as if you just disappeared. Like you never say an answer to the question, hey, will I see you at five o'clock? Just disappear. The kids these days are saying that that's ghosting someone and that's what Israel did to God. They turned their backs from him. They acted as if he was not there. And this is what we are able to do naturally. The only thing naturally we can do as we are apart from Christ is either fail to recognize the one who made us or reject the one who came to save us. Apart from God's work in our hearts and in our lives, our deepest problem is our inability to receive God, to receive his salvation, to receive his son. Charles Spurgeon said about this passage that Jesus was a stranger in his own house. Which is a funny picture. Can you imagine coming home, um, particularly dads, thinking about coming home to your wives and kids and opening the front door and they're doing whatever they're doing and they just stop and look at you like, what are you, who are you? What are you doing here? Be like, you know, it's a wonderful life kind of moment, right? If you remember in that movie towards the end, when George Bailey wishes he was never born. And so uh, the angel shows him an alternate reality in which he was not born. And he goes to his own people and they don't receive him because they have no idea who he is. Anyway, Spurgeon says, Jesus was a stranger in his own house. He was unknown amidst his own handiwork. Men whom he had made, made nothing of him. Is Christ a stranger in your life, church? Perhaps we might say, of course not. Stranger is a strong word. I know him. Jesus gave us a harsh warning in Matthew 7 that many will come to him in that last day, the day of judgment, and say, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name and performed many mighty signs in your name? And his warning to that group of people is what? 
depart from me because I never knew you. I did not have a face-to-face relationship with you. And the fact is, is that he's talking about people who are in the church. We want to say that everybody who sets foot in here every Sunday must know God and have received Christ. And perhaps we're not that extreme. Maybe, maybe you can say, no, I'm pretty certain that I do know him. I'm pretty certain because of the transformation that has happened in my life sometime before. Because my life is different. Because the, but is he a stranger? How close on a scale of friend to stranger would you put Jesus? Hopefully not just somewhere in the middle. Hopefully at least leaning towards friend. And further away from the idea of a stranger. The definition for receive, as we find theologically, is to submit to and welcome. Well, perhaps the hospitable among us have no problem with welcoming people into our homes, into our lives, and sharing what we have. But submission is a hard word for us today, is it not? We don't go anywhere because we want to submit to somebody. And yet, here you all are, submitting to God's word, I hope. I hope that when you come to church, you are thinking of saying, Lord, I'm going to submit this time to you so that I might worship you as you're worthy and hear from your word that I might grow in my ability to serve you more. But today, what we hear mostly about submission is our desire not to submit, right? Very un-American thing to submit to an authority. And we're living in a strange time where we have to face the question of, wearing masks or not, and and whether people are making it a law or a mandate and what the difference is between those two things. And I'm not here to say that you should or should not wear a mask, but there may be something in our response to human authority that may in fact reflect our response to divine authority. Maybe. Don't throw tomatoes at me. I'm just saying. It may have a connection. I hope it doesn't. But perhaps there's something else that you don't want to submit to some authority in your life. Maybe it's a boss at work who doesn't do a good job, who doesn't know how to do their job, who you know, I could do that job better than them. If we are capable of making such claims and having such rebellions, whether they are right or wrong, let's put that to to the side, if we're capable of making those kind of claims and those statements and rebellions in regards to human authority, you have to be really careful that we are indeed submitting to and receiving and welcoming Christ in our lives because he is an authority. He is the one who has made us. We must be sure that we are, making, that we are not making nothing of him. We spent 13 weeks in 1 John and under the title of abiding. And I think that word is helpful for us as we think about receiving Christ into our homes, into our lives, into our workplaces, into our recreation, into everything that we do, into every moment. Again, John's appeal for the authority of Christ begins at creation. But by the end of the book, we're going to see that his appeal to Jesus' authority is going to have an even greater place because at the cross he will take all of our sin upon himself and die as a substitute in our place so that his people might live freely. But we have to ask ourselves, do we go about our days as though we don't know him? What evidence is there in your life that you have received and not not rejected him or, or that you have in fact known him? Is he who made you a stranger in any part of your life? Because Christ will have nothing less 
than all of your life. Israel was to be God's treasured possession. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6 says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What Israel has rejected in Christ is being offered to anyone, including the Jews, including the covenant people of the Old Testament, that if they will receive Christ, they can become not only the, those who receive a gift from him, but they can be that treasured possession of his as well. The kingdom was not meant to be as things were back then. And like Israel, like the Old Testament people of God, we find ourselves too often drifting from the presence of the Lord, drifting from receiving him, submitting to him, and welcoming him into every area of our lives. Maybe we don't want to invite Jesus into work because we like to be a grump at work. Have you worked with those people? I sure have. I work with one right now. That's a joke because mostly I work by myself. But it's true. I don't know how to explain this passage. I don't know. How am I going to get all this stuff done? Oh, my goodness. My boss is so hard on me. Those kind of things are not just things that we hear from them and they bounce off because we're Christians, right? Oh, but I'm holy. I won't be treating my boss that way. You end up swimming like the fish that you swim with, people. You're going to, if you are not prepared to live differently, you're not going to. And this is our problem. We have trouble receiving, welcoming, and submitting Christ, submitting to Christ in every area of our lives. Perhaps it's not work, perhaps it's recreation. Lord, I'm going to sit down and watch this TV show, and it's about Santa Claus being replaced by some millennial weirdo who's going to create a, you know, whatever that is. Whatever that thing is that you do for recreation, is Christ welcomed in that? If he's not, it's probably because we don't feel like we could welcome him into it, right? I don't feel like we could sit down and say, hey, Jesus, come watch the show with me. Let me pass you the Doritos. I wonder if he'd be welcome in your living room in that regard. If he'd want to be there. I'm not saying don't watch TV. But I am saying garbage in, garbage out, right? What could possibly be our solution? The solution is, of course, here in God's word. But, verse 12, look at this with me, please. To all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. What a wonderful sentence. John is perhaps the most theological of all the gospel writers, and he wastes no time in explaining what God is about in the life of Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 12 here, we have this wonderful phrase that as those, in this contrast in thinking, you know, as you, if you were to read this for the first time ever, you might think, man, the world didn't know him. His own people didn't receive him. What hope is there? What, Jesus has failed. He hasn't failed. And this isn't even inconsistent with the rest of the story thus far that we see in the Old Testament, right? There's always been a believing remnant. There's always been a handful, as it were, of people who believe on Christ, who trusted the Lord in the Old Testament. Think about Elijah complaining to God and saying, I am the only one of your prophets left. Boo-hoo for me. And his life was tough, so I don't want to be too hard on him. But 
what did, you, what did the Lord say in response? I've reserved 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not by yourself. And so it is now, today as well. Though the world rejects him, there is a remnant. There are people who will receive him. So where are you today? Where are you today, Facebook watcher? Have you received Christ? Do you believe in the work of Christ for salvation? Have you submitted your life to him? Have you welcomed him into your life? The right to become God's children is given by the Son of God, who gives us his heritage, his strength, and his love. And where do we get that? We're going to zoom down to verse 13 towards the end right now. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does all that mean? Blood, the will of the flesh, and the will of man? What John's talking about is heritage when it comes to blood. When he says those who receive him, he's not saying it's those who were the, parent, the, the children of so-and-so who was the ch- child of so-and-so and, and so on and forth because that's what the people of God really hoped in. They hoped that, hey, because I'm a son of Abraham, I should be good. John says it's not about whose child you are. It's not about your heritage. Secondly, it can't be about the will of the flesh. That is to say your own strength. You cannot will yourself into the family of God as much as you might try. Then thirdly, nor of the will of a man. Well, flesh and man, these are kind of confusing here. So let's use these words. We have heritage, we have strength, and then we have love. This idea of the will of man is talking about the physical relationship between a man and a woman that would create life. He's saying you can't... You can't will this. You can't have so much love or so much passion in this way that you could create life in yourself the way that a husband and wife might create life and expand their family. He's saying this is totally different because it is done by the will of God alone. God's solution to our problem of not being known, of him not being known and of him not being received is that in Christ's mission to come into creation and to redeem us at the cross, we find ample reason to actively receive what Christ has given. Because at the cross, he not only, and this is a theological hill I'm willing to die on, he not only purchased the possibility, he purchased the assurance that he would save his people. When he says mission accomplished, he was able to look into the full of the future and knowing that what he did at the cross secured not only your opportunity to receive him, but the fact that you would. And I think that's proven here. Because you might look at it and say, well, no, let's look at the order. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They were born not of the... And you might say that this is meant to be sequential. And that when I receive Christ, then I'm given the right to become a child of God and I become one. But this is not sequential in ABC form. It's actually working backwards. John says the ones who receive Christ by believing in him, they're given the right to become children of God. What you have in, in being a child of God is given to you by Christ. All the glorious rights of that, which we'll talk about in a minute. But first, let's understand the ordo salutis again, the order of salvation. Because what John doesn't say here is once you receive, you're born again. But he says, because you've been born, you've been born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God's will, then you're able to receive Christ. You are able to receive not only Christ, but also that right to become children of God. What does that look like sequentially in our lives? It looks like the wind is how Jesus described it. You don't become part of God's family and then sometime later on receive Christ. 
What John is describing is something that happened all in a moment as far as our own experience. But it begins with the work of God. It always begins with the work of God. The question that we asked from last week in thinking about bearing witness to others about the light was, does the reception of others really matter as far as your willingness to be a witness to Christ? Do you determine whether you're going to share your faith based on how you think they're going to respond? And does that really matter? Should that be your determining factor? Well, hopefully you with me answered no to that. And I think that what we see in this passage is the reason we can say no. Because Jesus came to a world that didn't know him and a people who rejected him, but he came all the same. He still fulfilled his mission. He didn't save every single person. It's a terribly sad truth that not all will receive Christ. And that is not due to God's unwillingness to save them, but because in the mystery of his will, they did not receive him. But to those who do receive him, who believe in his name, Jesus gives the right to become children of God. He knew many would reject him. And there's a great King James word that we don't use so much anymore because we talk about patience so much, but the King James calls patience long-suffering. And this is indeed a great word to describe what Christ has done in waiting for that remnant that would be his, that would belong to him. He was long-suffering in that. So in verse 12, we see what we have to receive and what must be our response. We receive by believing, by faith alone. Do I need to get something straight before I can come to Christ? No, because you can't. You can't receive Christ because it's not about your will, not about your passion, not about uh, your strength. Joel 2, 12 through 13, which we looked at some months ago in our minor prophet study, and this verse stuck out and came to me this morning, actually, in thinking about this. Joel writes, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Those are not works. Those are uh, evidence of a rendered heart. In verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. I wonder if you, like me, forget that when I repent and come back to the Lord, he receives me as if he had received me the first time I believed. He is merciful. He is abounding in steadfast love. And what does he call me to do? To rend my hearts, not my garments. Don't show physical signs of, of humility in order to please God, but let your heart be rent before him and given new life in Christ. Believing in his name, that's not just to say that you believe that a man named Jesus existed, but that in Jesus Christ, all of what that means, that he is the word who was with God and who was God, who created all things, and everything that comes after that in the New Testament, we receive all of who Christ is. And you might be familiar with the story about Thomas Jefferson taking his Bible and cutting pages out that he disagreed with, and then finally ending with a much smaller version of the Bible that amounted to mostly most of the parts of the Gospels, he said, this is something I can receive. I can receive this now. What John says in receiving and believing in the name of Christ is that we cannot leave anything behind. We must indeed submit all of who we are and welcome him into all of our lives. But how do we believe? The verse I probably used too much, if that's possible. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing the word and the word is heard through the word about Christ. Hearing the word of Christ is how we receive faith. 
And whether you know Christ today or you don't know him, you should be hopefully by his grace receiving faith by hearing his word. You cannot muster faith the way a general musters his troops and excites them for battle. And you see these old war movies, or perhaps you're a veteran, and you can remember what it looks like for soldiers to follow a general into battle. And, and, you know, I I watch these movies sometimes, and sometimes I'm like, I know they're going to lose. Why are they following that guy? Because of the great influence that the general has on them. Because he's somebody that they respect at the very least, if not love, and are willing to follow even to death. We cannot muster our faith in that way, though. We must receive it from Christ. And he is freely ready to bestow that on us, to give it to us. In verse 13, we find what's going on behind the scenes. That's all that's going on there. God is making those who were unable by any will of their own, by any power of their own, to become his children. And then they receive Christ by faith. In regards to the relationship of this new birth and faith, Um, Sinclair Ferguson says there is no gap to detect. As I said earlier, it is a a moment where these two things meet and we have no reason to boast. All our hopes of adoption as children of God rest on the will of God and we cannot will ourselves into God's family and we, praise God, we do not need to. The receiving is taking the right of children of God into our own hands, but we can't take our adoption into our own hands. You have to walk in the rights of becoming a child of God. We saw in 1 John 3, back in our 1 John series, what we have to look forward to as children of God. In 1 John 3, 1 through 3, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We have a wonderful hope in that we are the children of God. John says we are the children of God now. And what we will be is even greater. It's even more wonderful to experience. We have an indescribable gift in Christ. He's given us the right to act on what the Lord has done in our hearts. We have to receive that every day, though. We have to live like the children of God that we are, right? We must choose to do that. We must respond to the darkness of the world with the light of Christ and not with further darkness. So what could be a resolution today? I need to actively receive Christ by his word, by daily prayer, And by faith, I need to bear witness to this great gift of being a child of God. I need to be what I am, which is a confusing thing to say, but it's very true of a Christian. So I want to give you a specific challenge this week, and that is, as you go to his word, whatever time you do that, in whatever way, and and whatever passage you're reading right now, I wonder if you might take a moment before you read and say, and, and, and maybe just close your eyes and just imagine, if you're a Christmas person like me, it may be easier but imagine Christmas morning and being given a gift and you, you receive it and you, you haven't even opened it yet and you say, oh, thank you so much. This was so generous of you to give me anything. I don't know what it is. It could be, you know, one of those boxes where the pie comes back and hits me in the face, but I'm thankful right now because I don't know what it is. As far as I can see, it's a good gesture. Would you take a moment when you go to God's word this week and stop and pray before you look and say, Lord, thank you. I receive what you have for me today. 
by faith, not by my own works, not by earning anything, not even by my ability to understand necessarily what's going on. Because let's face it, how many of us, we say, I've got five minutes to look at God's word. I don't know if I'm going to get it all. And then you read it and you go, okay, I read the Bible at least. That's okay, beloved. God loves you and he loves your attempts at getting into God's word. And, and perhaps what he wants in those times is for you to dive deeper into his word. But would you take a moment in your times in the word this week and thank him before you've even read what he has to say, to receive and put yourself in the mindset of receiving his word. You know, I mentioned the Pevensies from Chronicles of Narnia earlier. And uh, we, we finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and a couple nights ago we started Prince Caspian. And in, uh, sorry for spoiler alerts, but this book's like 60 years old, so it's, it's out of that ban, right? Um, in Prince Caspian, the Pevensies return to Narnia for no, uh, they have no understanding why they're there yet. Um, they don't even know that they're in Narnia. They're on some island. It doesn't look familiar to them. Well, gradually in the first few chapters, they realize that this island used to be the peninsula upon which sat their castle, where they were kings and queens of Narnia. And they start to realize that, but it doesn't really hit them until they come into the treasure room. And that's what we read last night. And in that room, they find the gifts that Father Christmas gave them in the first book. And Susan particularly picks up her bow and draws the string back that, that seems to have not aged, even though around them the world has aged perhaps hundreds of years. This bow is in perfect condition. And it says that when she pulled back the bow and released the arrow, it said that one small noise brought back the old days to the children's minds. They had spent decades in Narnia um, living as kings and queens and then were sent back to the real world um, as children again. It says that it brought all of that back to their minds more than anything that had happened yet. All the battles and hunts and feasts came rushing into their heads together. And it just made me think as I was reading that last night, that is what God's word does to us. It reminds us of the gospel of what Christ has come to do. And if you will, by faith, receive his word this week with the anticipation that it'll be like Susan pulling back that bowstring and suddenly that familiarity and that memory comes back to them. Jesus died for me is what we ought to be thinking. He came into this world that he knew would reject him. I want to receive that. I want to live a life of receiving it. And I want to repent of my inability to receive it and my, my choosing to receive other things instead and my, my, my desire to live like the darkness around me. I want to repent of that and receive what God has for me today. And I promise you, church, if you will ask that of the Lord, if, you will, if you'll believe, his word will be powerful in your lives. It will be life-changing and it will be like catching a baseball in that old baseball glove that's in your garage again which is an illustration I didn't use. So let's go back to the bow and the pulling back the arrow. <laughs> All right, will you pray with me, please? <laughs> oh, Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that we are yours. Lord, if anybody who is hearing this message today doesn't know you, Lord, we pray that you would reveal their sin to them so that they might be freed of it, so they might repent and turn away from it and bear fruit in keeping with repentance, as John the baptizer would say, as we also ought to do as well. Lord, help us as we examine our lives to see where we may not be receiving you as we ought. Show us the greatness of the gift that you've given us this Christmas and all throughout the year. And may we be faithful witnesses to it, to those around us, for your glory.
and for our good and joy in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.